Let's turn to Second Peter chapter 1, new book. I'm excited, are you? Brand new book, Second Peter. We're going to cover verse 1 today. Actually half of verse 1. By way of introduction, First Peter, which we just completed about three weeks ago, two weeks ago. First Peter was written around 63 A.D., Second Peter was written about three years later, around 66 A.D. So this book that we are now beginning, Second Peter, uh, was written approximately one year before Peter was martyred in Rome. If you recall, we're not told this in the Bible, but extra-biblical historical accounts tell us that Peter was crucified and he requested specifically that he be crucified upside down because he did not believe he was worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So one year after this book was written, he was crucified in Rome. And like First Peter, this letter was most likely also written in Rome. Uh, many Bible teachers, scholars, and so forth consider the key verses in Peter's second epistle to be found in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So, we can take from these two verses what we believe to be Peter's twofold purpose in writing this letter. One, to warn his readers against false teachings, which we'll get into in chapter 2. And secondly, to encourage them to grow in their personal and practical knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we will begin today in verse 1. Simon Peter, verse 1, chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to note something here. There's, there's an ongoing debate in many circles about whether or not Jesus is really God and whether he really claimed to be God or is that just something that Christians came up with. This is one of many verses that confirms to us, and there are so many, I don't know how anybody could miss it. And yet, many people do miss it. But notice right here, Peter talks about the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see that Peter is clearly identifying Jesus as God here? Yes, he is. All right, let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word. We thank you for this book of Second Peter, for the the amazing man of God that Peter became as he was filled with the Holy Spirit and spent the next 30 years of his life preaching the gospel, shepherding the flock of God, and ultimately making the ultimate sacrifice, dying on a cross upside down for the glory and the honor of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask you to bless this time of study today. Touch our hearts, Father. Transform us by the renewing of our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, we're going to start with the first two words. Simon Peter. Simon is actually the, um, the Greek version of the Hebrew Simeon. He is referred to as Simeon one time, Acts 15, 14. So Simeon was his given Hebrew name and then transliterated uh, in the writing of the New Testament into the Greek Simon. But we also know that Jesus gave him another name, right? Peter. The Greek is Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, and it means rock. We'll talk in a moment about how not as big of a rock as some people might think. It does mean rock. We're not going to downplay that. But the Apostle Paul on numerous occasions referred to him as Cephas. How many of you have noticed that in certain biblical passages? Cephas also means rock. 1 Corinthians 1.12 Now I say, this is Paul writing, Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. And so in the first century church, the church was already kind of breaking up into denominations. Some identifying as followers of Paul, some of Apollos, who of course was not one of the original 12 apostles. Some were identifying more with Cephas or Peter. And then some, the ultra-spiritual folks, I'm of Christ. I don't identify with any of these guys. I only follow Jesus. Which sounds really spiritual, but you know what I mean when I talk about kind of a false spirituality? Kind of a um, holier-than-thou attitude. And Paul was debunking all that, that there should be no divisions in the church. But that's where we see one of the references to Peter as Cephas. 1 Corinthians 3.22 Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come all are yours. Now Jesus gave him the name Petros or Peter because he would ultimately prove to possess a solid, firm faith in Christ which would lead him to the cross, as we mentioned, just like his friend and mentor and Savior. Now prior to Acts chapter 2, where we see the Holy Spirit falling upon the 12 apostles and the rest of the 120 in the upper room. Prior to that, Peter was strong. We know that. He was the one who whipped out his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant when they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter was strong, but he was impulsive. Remember that? He often would stick his big fisherman's foot in his mouth. But after being empowered by the Holy Spirit, when the baptism of the Holy Spirit came upon uh, the believers in Acts chapter 2 and really inaugurated and initiated the New Testament church, Peter from that point on was rock solid. So he lived up to his name. And one of the great things about God and about our Lord Jesus is that when he calls us, to himself and we answer that call he pronounces us to be things that we aren't really there yet but he sees us as though we are 
We're sanctified. We're set apart for God's holy purposes. We're justified just as if I'd never sinned. We are considered righteous. We are considered eternal, even though we still dwell in mortal bodies. As far as God is concerned, we have already entered into eternal life because though our physical bodies may die, our spirits will live on for eternity in paradise with Him. And then at the proper time, in God's proper time, we will have a resurrected physical body to go along with it. And so, when Jesus called Peter, he did not pronounce him to be who he was at that time, but the one that Jesus knew he would become. You're Simon, you're Simeon, I call you Peter. I call you Petros. I call you the rock. Because before I'm done with you, you are going to be rock solid. <clears throat> Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter. This is the section where Jesus is asking his apostles, his disciples, who do men say that I am? And so they say, well, we've heard some people say they think you're Jeremiah. You know, others think you're Elijah. Others think you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaking out on behalf of the whole group, the twelve, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus goes, you know what, Peter? This has not been revealed to you by man, but by the Holy Spirit. And so, in response to Peter, giving that very strong pronouncement that Peter knew, then and there, long before the crucifixion, long before the resurrection, Peter knew because the Holy Spirit had made it known to him. Jesus had called Peter. Peter had answered the call, become one of the twelve. And he pronounces, you are the Christ, the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, okay, I'm going to call you Peter, Petros. But this is where it gets interesting. He says, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So this is where the idea came, I believe, for the Catholic Church to pronounce that Peter was indeed the first pope. There actually aren't any popes in the New Testament. That's not an office. We read about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. There aren't any popes. I mean, there is a pope, but in the Bible... Maybe that's a controversial thing to say, I don't know, but there aren't any imams in the Bible either. So, there's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But, what I'm getting at here, the part where it says, on this rock, it's a different word. In English, it's the same. You are Peter, Petros, the rock, and on this rock, Petra, P-E-T-R-A. Slight difference, slight variation. And literally, if we translated it literally from the Greek into English, it would say, on this, the rock. Who is the rock? Jesus. So what Jesus is saying, Peter, before I'm done with you, you're going to be rock solid. You're going to be... You're going to make it to the finish line. You're going to be preeminent. Writing a couple of books in the New Testament. 
And ultimately, you're going to die on the cross for me. You're going to live a life that's glorifying to me. You're going to be rock solid once you get filled with the Holy Spirit. But upon this, the rock, and by the way, Peter's pronouncement is exactly that. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter is basically saying, you are the rock. Because, I don't know if you've done a word search on this, but there are a gazillion verses in the Old Testament where God is referred to as the rock. So another interesting part of this, not only is Jesus saying, upon the rock, upon the truth, Peter, which you have just spoken, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon this rock, I will build my church. Could there be any other foundation? There is, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, there is no other foundation but Jesus Christ. The church could not have been built upon Peter. The way I like to put it, just for comparison's sake, is that um, Petros, Peter, was more like, you know, a pebble. And Jesus is like Bam Bam. You see? Pebbles and Bam Bam. Peter is Petros, Jesus is Petra. Peter is likened to a stone. But Jesus refers to himself as the rock. Big enough, strong enough to build his church upon. Psalms 18.2 The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. That's why we did all these rock songs today, if you will. Songs about the rock. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I love this one in 1 Samuel 2.2. No one is holy like the Lord. I got in a little bit of a dispute. Gosh, it's going back quite a few years now. We've been in this building since 09, 06, probably 15 years ago maybe, that I had made a reference one Sunday to the fact that you and I, are not holy. That only God is holy. And that upsets someone. But it's absolutely true and it's absolutely biblical. The only holiness we have is the holiness that Christ imparts to us. It's not ours, it's His. He graciously imparts to us His holiness because without holiness no one can see the Lord. We need His holiness, but we don't have any. We have to get it from Him. And it says right here, No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. So Peter, you're going to be a rock in my kingdom, but I am the rock. There is no rock like our God. There are many, many verses in the Old Testament that refer to God as the rock. Jesus' reference to himself as the rock in Matthew 16 is just another one of the many ways in which he reveals himself to be God, just like we said here in the first verse of Second Peter. So many verses where Jesus is revealed to be God, because only God is the rock. Very interesting, back in Daniel 2.34, Daniel is interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, you watched, Nebi, that's what I like to call him, Nebi, while a stone was cut out, Without hands. Now, how do you do that? 
You know, that's one of the ancient trades, tradesmen, stonecutters, right? And if you go to Jerusalem, man, everything is built out of this Jerusalem stone, this beautiful white stone. It's really cool. I mean, it's cut in blocks. It's just gorgeous. But that that has traditionally been just a highly regarded trade, being a stonecutter, and yet it speaks here of a stone that was cut without hands. How do you do that? Well, because God cut this stone out. It's Jesus, which struck the image. The image, remember the, the giant image portraying the four great kingdoms of the world with the final one being the feet mix of iron mixed with clay, which represents the final world empire of the Antichrist, which is going to crumble after a very short period of time. And it struck, this rock struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. The return of Christ is going to destroy what's left of the, of the final world kingdom or empire, which will be overseen by the Antichrist. Down in verse 44 of Daniel 2, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Now, does God already have a kingdom? Yeah. But when he talks about setting up a kingdom, it means here on the earth. Jesus said when he spoke to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, I'd fight for it. Right now, the kingdom of God, at least from our perspective here on earth, it's a spiritual one. The kingdom of God is within. We know that God is in heaven. We know that there are angelic beings there with him. There are fallen angels messing around everywhere. But one day very soon, the kingdom of God is going to be established here on this earth. And it'll be a kingdom that'll never be destroyed. But the way that kingdom will be launched and inaugurated will be by Christ returning with the saints and destroying the kingdom of the Antichrist. And so it likens Christ under this stone, this rock, that is going to fall upon the kingdom of the Antichrist and destroy him, destroy it. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. So the kingdom or worldwide government of the Antichrist will be the final human orchestrated, human coordinated, human run government, if you will. Christ is going to destroy all earthly human government and replace it with his government. Talk about regime change. And I'm all for it. How about you? (laughs) It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Jesus is the rock. Peter was rock solid because Jesus got a hold of him, saved him, filled him with the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is the rock. Now Peter, Simon Peter, he identifies himself first as a bondservant. The Greek is doulos. A bondservant is basically a slave. In some Bibles, the word bondservant is the translation of the Greek word doulos. 
which means one who is subservient to and entirely at the disposal of his master, a slave. Apostle Paul also identified himself as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So some translations use this word bondservant. Other translations use the word slave or simply servant. In Roman times, the term bondservant or slave could refer to someone who voluntarily served others. And by the way, that's what happens when you receive Christ. You are volunteering. He will not force you. You are volunteering to serve him for the rest of your life. And in ancient times, there were those who would voluntarily sell themselves into slavery. And that's what we do, basically, when we receive Christ. Because we realize and recognize that it's much better to be a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ than to be a slave and a captive of Satan. And really, those are the only two choices we have. Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So, sometimes it referred to someone who volunteered, usually referred to one who was held in a permanent position of servitude. Under Roman law, a bondservant was considered the owner's personal property. Slaves essentially had no rights and could even be killed with impunity by their owners. And I'm not talking about 150 years ago in the United States, although it was certainly a like situation, which is thankfully far behind us. But sadly, it's been something that's gone on from the beginning of human history. Various cultures, various people groups, various ethnic groups, one enslaving another, and that's what happens with fallen man, with the sinful human heart. There is that propensity, there is that tendency for man to want to enslave his fellow man, whereas Christ came to set us free. Now the difference between human slave masters and our God is that he doesn't abuse us he blesses us, he loves us, he nourishes us, he treasures us as we voluntarily commit ourselves to him as bondservants. But notice again, under Roman law, a bondservant was considered the owner's personal property. I'm afraid in far too many cases, Christians have it backwards. In far too many cases... Christians act like that God is their possession. No. We are His possession. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you, Corinthians, Christians, Paul writes, you were bought at a price. What was the price? The blood of Christ. Jesus laid down His life. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. John chapter 15, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You were bought at a price. Again, whereas human traffickers, human traffickers, slave traders, paid cold hard cash for their slaves and then proceeded in many cases to abuse them, 
Jesus paid the price with his own blood. You were bought at a price. So therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, if we as believers could really get a hold of this truth and walk in that daily, it'd be a whole different world. It'd be a whole different church. But honestly, how many of us, day by day, as we go through life, are we going through with this understanding, this mentality? You know what? I belong to God. I'm His property. Therefore, I'm here to do His bidding. I'm here to do His will. What do you want from me today, God? I'm yours. I belong to you. You call the shots. How many believers really live like that? And yet, that's how we're supposed to live. Can you imagine how the impact we could have in the world if we really live like that, the way we're supposed to, as the property of Jesus. Another great Bob Dylan song, the property of Jesus. Peter humbly acknowledges that he is the property of Jesus, owned by God. Simon Peter, bondservant, first of all, before he mentions the fact that he's an apostle, I'm an apostle. No, he starts off very humbly. First and foremost, I'm Petros, I'm Peter, I'm a slave of Christ. And by the way, I'm just going to throw this in as a bonus. No extra charge. If you study 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you will find that in the same way that our relationship to God is to be that of bondservants, that we're the property of Jesus, of God. In the marriage relationship, the Bible teaches us that when we get married, we become the property of the other person. Did you know that? Uh-oh. Again, can you imagine if all married couples lived that way? Well, honey, I'm your property. And if both parties are doing that, my goodness, you'd be outdoing one another in kindness. You'd, be, you'd get tired of winning. <laughs> you'd be winning so much, you'd get tired of winning. <laughs> are you tired of winning yet? <laughs> I'm hoping and praying for a big win on Tuesday in Singapore. Very monumental summit taking place between President Trump and the dictator of North Korea. We all aware of that? Something to keep in prayer. What an exciting possibility. The end of the Korean War. Did you know the Korean War never ended? It's been going on for what, 60 years? 50, since the 50s? Almost 70 years. There's been a ceasefire. But that war has never been officially ended. There's been no end to that. One of the things that people are hoping for, praying for, is that can finally, a treaty can be signed officially ending the Korean War and also the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Wouldn't that be a great thing? Keep that in your prayers. So after Peter identifies himself by both names, his given name, Simon or Simeon, and the name that Christ gave him, just so we make sure who we know is talking to us here, it's Simon Peter, Simeon Petros, bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. 
And that's important. Peter's not throwing his title around. In fact, at least in the English translation, it's just a small a. Apostle. But I want to make note of the fact, the interesting, could almost be called a paradox, if you will, on the natural plane, that he identifies himself first as a bondservant and then as an apostle, one who was preeminent, one of the twelve, who was with Christ throughout his three years or three and a half years of earthly ministry. Only in the kingdom of God could someone be a bondservant and an apostle at the same time. You follow what I'm saying here? Certainly in the physical world, the material world, if you will, a bondservant would never be able to lay claim to any kind of a title like that. Mark 9.35, he sat down, Jesus called the twelve, one of the many training sessions that they had, and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, and that was something that was going on with the apostles, you know, John and Peter were always kind of battling it out for the preeminence. James and John, the sons of thunder, Boanerges, asked their mom to go to Jesus and maybe they thought that coming from their mother, Jesus would be more sympathetic. Uh, mom, we want you to ask Jesus if when he comes into his kingdom that one of us could sit on his left and the other on his right. So, uh, we probably have tend to have somewhat glorified viewpoint of the apostles, but they were people just like you and I. They struggled with the same issues, and one of their issues was jealousy, competitiveness. There's nothing wrong with healthy competition, but I'm not so sure all of their competition was healthy. So he tells these guys, if anyone desires to be first, and by the way, I know some of you do, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So Jesus taught the way to become first is to be last. And he modeled that by taking off his outer garment, wrapping a towel around his waist, and washing the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. Do we all remember that? Again, only in the kingdom of God would you have the Son of God, God incarnate, the Savior of the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, get down on his hands and knees like a servant and wash the dirty feet of these men. Peter is modeling that here when he says, I'm a bondservant and an apostle. And the reason that he was an apostle is because he was a bondservant. Now, I want to answer a question that you may or may not be asking yourself. What were and are the qualifications of a true apostle? Because you may have noticed a lot of people like to throw that around. I've seen business cards. Apostle. Bill Johnson. No. I'm just, you know, whatever. I'm just using a name. They'll give you their card. I'm an apostle. Really? Acts 1, 21 and 22. Peter gets up just prior to Pentecost, after Christ has ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1. Peter gets up in front of the group and says, Guys, we have a problem we need to fix here. Uh, one of the twelve is dead. Judas went out and hanged himself. He's gone. The one who betrayed our Lord and Savior. We need somebody. Jesus chose twelve. 
12 is an important number. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 New Testament apostles. We see both groups represented in heaven in the book of Revelation. So together they are the pillars of the Old and New Testament church. We need a replacement. So in verse 21 he says, Therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went out in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And we've talked about this so many times here in this church. The very focal point of the apostles' message was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What separates the God from the boys, so to speak, is that Jesus died and then rose again. In the, book, in the last chapter of Luke, you read about it. So many places where Jesus instructed them that they were to go out and to be witnesses of his resurrection. And so Peter, in, in uh, addressing the group and saying, we need to pick a replacement to go out with us and from us to be a witness of the resurrection. There are a multitude of pulpits filled today across America, Great Britain, many parts of the world by men and women who don't believe in the resurrection. Did you know that? Liberal churches, social justice churches that don't believe in the virgin birth, the atonement of Christ on the cross, and they don't believe that he rose from the dead. How can you be a witness for Christ? How can you be a representative of Christ, a disciple of Christ, if you don't believe in the resurrection? That's the whole ball game. If Jesus didn't rise, it's game over. Because what we desperately need more than anything else is deliverance from death. God did not create us to die. He created us to live forever. But Adam and Eve messed that up. Jesus came to fix it by paying the price for our sins on the cross and then conquering death when he rose from the dead. If you feel like, man, I'm not very good at talking to people, witnessing, I don't know what to do or say, I get tongue-tied, I fumble around, I don't know what, just focus on the resurrection. Because if that's true, then people have no choice but to receive Christ. The resurrection proves that Jesus is everything that he claimed to be. The Son of God, the Savior of the world, the resurrection proves it. And if he's alive, that means when you pray and invite him to come into your life, to come into your heart, guess what happens? He does. So if you, don't even, if you can't even recite one Bible verse, I hope you can, but if you can't, just challenge them with this. Do you believe in the resurrection? Well, I'm not sure. Would you like to be sure? Well, yeah, I guess. How about if you pray with me, invite Christ into your life, into your heart, see what happens. The focal point of the gospel message is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So we see here in these two verses in Acts chapter 1, 21 and 22, the requirements for an apostle. One, this is so politically incorrect. What can I do? Therefore, of these men, apostle has to be a man. I'm sorry. Women are great. God loves women. Some of Jesus' closest followers were women. First person to see the risen Christ was Mary Magdalene. But God has an order within his kingdom, within his church. And apostles were men. That makes it difficult with these new gender-neutral Bibles. Have to change their names, I guess. I don't know. Petrina, Johanna, I don't know. A man, number one. I guess I could have skipped that, but I'm so naughty, you know. Secondly, had to be someone who had followed Jesus from the beginning of his public ministry. Notice that. Beginning from the baptism of John. That's where Jesus' public ministry began. He was baptized by John the Baptist, remember? Someone who had followed Jesus from the beginning of his public ministry, which began at the hands of John the Baptist with his baptism. Beginning from the baptism of John. And a number of these apostles had been followers of John the Baptist prior to following Jesus. We could also add, I think, to this, someone who had not wavered in their faith or their commitment to Christ because we see the words all the time until he was taken up from us. So someone who'd been there from the beginning, who had stuck with it through thick and thin, we know that towards the end of Jesus' public ministry, just prior to the crucifixion, the majority of the people who had been following him, not the twelve, but Many of the others turned away and followed him no more. So there was the inner circle of the twelve, and then there was an outer circle of dedicated followers, and then there was a larger circle of not necessarily so committed followers. So they were looking to draw from this pool just outside the twelve, but other men who were totally faithful to Christ They've been there all the time from the beginning until they watched Jesus ascend into heaven. The third requirement, and this is a biggie, especially in light of what we just talked about a few moments ago, a man who had personally seen and interacted with the risen Lord Jesus. Seen the risen Christ. You can't go out and be a witness of the resurrection if you didn't witness it. Immediately some might be thinking, uh-oh, then how could Paul be an apostle? Well, it's easy to answer. Acts 9, 3 through 5. As he, Saul, who became Paul, as Saul journeyed, he came near Damascus. It's Damascus in Syria. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So Paul did have his own personal encounter with the risen Christ post-ascension. 
He gives an account in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-10. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He was seen by Cephas, Peter, first of all, then by the twelve. After that He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. Most of the people who saw Christ alive after His death were still alive in, in the 60s of the first century. But some have fallen asleep. After that He was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, He was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles. He says that because He wasn't there during the three years of Christ's earthly ministry. He was a Johnny come lately, if you will, but he was Jesus' choice. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, where we were just reading, we find that they had not been filled with the Holy Spirit yet. They used the uh, basically the uh, casting of lots, like tossing the dice. They picked a guy named Matthias. I'm sure he was a great guy, but you never hear anything about him again. They weren't being led by the Spirit at that point. God had somebody else in mind for the twelfth apostle, Saul, who became Paul. I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Long before Popeye. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. It's almost like you know, a stepchild or an adopted child. Paul felt like he had to go above and beyond because he wasn't one of the original twelve. But by God's grace, he was chosen. I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. Because of the radical way in which Paul was saved. You know, a member of the Sanhedrin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a hater of Christians, desiring to kill them. And yet Christ in His grace and His mercy not only saved Paul, but called him to be the twelfth apostle. He was highly motivated. Notice in this passage we just read here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul states that Cephas, also known as Peter, was the first apostle to see the risen Christ and that he, Paul, was the last as one born out of due time. You know, down through the centuries, many have laid claim to the title of apostle. But in reality, and I think this is important because, like I said, a lot of people like to throw this title around. My wife was just talking to me this morning about one of her pet peeves in the church. The, not, not this church, the church at large, the church in general. And that is how believers tend to worship their pastors. I told her, honey, I don't think we have that problem here. <laughs> Take that guy out of here. No. I'm feeling Trumpish right now. Get him out of here. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Totally kidding. <laughs> Folks, in reality, there were and are only 12 apostles. Peter arguably was the first, and Paul, by his own admission, was the last. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when we're regenerated, when we're given our 
eternal, immortal, imperishable, glorified bodies, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me, He's talking to the twelve here, will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Special thrones for special men. But wait, we will get thrones as well. My point is that position of, of apostle was a very unique, special, one-time thing. And anybody who in this day and age claims to be an apostle is full of himself or herself. Revelation 20, verse 4, I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, the Antichrist, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. I highly recommend avoiding any microchips of any kind, by the way. I know it sounds good on paper. All my medical records will be there. What if I'm in an accident? They can scan it. They can help me. They can save my life. They can find my kids or my wife or my husband if they're kidnapped. Better to trust in the Lord, in my opinion. Had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ. Notice the word reigned, thrones, but not the thrones that the apostles will have. They will have the specific task of judging the twelve tribes of Israel, while we will assist Jesus in judging the nations. Well, now we have a better picture of our author, Peter. Bond servant an apostle. And I'm excited as we begin our journey together through the rich passages of Second Peter. Let's stand. Father God, we are thankful for every single word in your holy Bible, your holy scriptures. We're thankful for Peter, the mighty man of God that he became, as we can, through your word, witness his transformation and his transition that he did become rock solid, even laying down his very life rather than deny Christ. One of those great apostles, the great witnesses of the resurrection, the founders of the New Testament church. In fact, he gave the inaugural message. He gave the first message when you began the New Testament church on the day of Pentecost. Lord, we're excited to study this book together. And we thank you for this amazing man, the amazing life he lived, and the books that he wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Pray this morning, Father, as we close, that anyone here who is sensing the need to receive Christ as Lord and Savior or to recommit their life, Lord, to come into a greater understanding that you're not our property, we're your property. Lord, if there's anyone here today that needs to come forward for prayer for any reason, we ask you to draw them by your Spirit. And we ask you to minister to them as our prayer team comes, we lay hands upon them, pray for them, pray with them. We pray for much fruit from this closing time of ministry now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.